Welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo, and it's my pleasure to welcome Nicole Walker, managing partner, Arboretum Ventures, to this month's episode. Nicole has had an amazing career starting off in industry at ACS and guidance before moving to venture, where she's been one of the most active, engaged venture capitalists in an exciting array of firms. She's also been at the forefront of addressing diversity and inclusion in our industry. Nicole, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, so gosh, what a start to the year. I mean, the markets are in turmoil and we're all running 100 miles an hour. But yeah, maybe we start there. How, what, what is, how do you deal with uh, this level of volatility in the public markets? Or does it, does it not really affect you too much in terms of what we do on a daily basis? You know, it, it, it always affects us in some way, right? Um, but I think especially I, I think in my case, the trick for us in this business is to always keep the steady approach <laughs> because by its very nature, t- venture tends to ebb and flow, uh, especially when you think about some of our subsectors within healthcare, devices are popular and then they're not. <laughs> Diagnostics are popular and then they're not. And everything happening at the macro level with the economy and the equity markets, it's just one more layer on top of that. So, you know, we have discussions with our CEOs, especially with our later stage companies about, is now the right time to go out and raise? Is now the right time to maybe take on a little bit more debt um, before things get maybe even even more challenging (laughs) into the second quarter of this year? So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of strategy discussions that are happening right now. But all things considered, they're good problems to have. If you have healthy companies that are are trying to to build really great solutions and innovative solutions and bring those to market, then the focus should be on how how creative can we get to make sure they have the the longest and broadest runway to do what they need to do to be successful. Yeah, it's it's so key to just uh, provide that level of um, uh, flexibility for these companies to endure some of these uh, ups and downs. You know, there was such exuberance in the market over the last few years and, you know, the public valuations of a lot of med tech companies and a lot of companies that went public were, you know, probably exceeded what we have seen, at least in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Have you seen now that things have sort of settled down a bit as have you seen that reflected in kind of the the deal terms that you're seeing out there? Oh, that's a good question. We haven't. I would say that there is, you know, we don't do biotech in, investing, but my sense of all of my biotech peers is that things are still very active and competitive there. Um, for those areas for us that are that have some bleed into um, a biotech solution or might be a pharma adjacent so- solution. Those are still competitive areas to get deals done. And coming out of the entire COVID experience, a lot of our life science tools and diagnostic companies continue to have a lot of attention to them. So, mm-hmm. so valuation, I guess we, we and I have always taken the long view on valuation, right? It really boils down to where, where do you think the exit value range is for a given company? And so for us, part of that is looking into the crystal ball and trying to figure out just how, how big this could be and if there is a potential pathway to IPO. And so 
you, you will step back. I will step back and, and say, okay, do, is it worth the fight to argue for, you know, this extra 10 million in valuation that yes, is a little high, but maybe this is a really strong team. Maybe this is a uniquely positioned technology. You can walk your way into getting more comfortable with it a lot of times. And then in other areas where you just haven't seen that to be the case, um, you know, I tend to hold more firm and mm-hmm. be willing to walk away from those opportunities. And we probably, I know because we looked at the numbers here recently, we walk away from more opportunities than we move forward with a number of times because of valuation, where we just can't get comfortable knowing the exit ranges that we've seen in the past and that what we're hearing from the strategics, if it's a if it's an M&A opportunity or from the analysts in those same areas that we just can't make some of those early valuations work. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's like every time I hear the phrase, you know, this is the new normal. And I think we started to hear that a little bit in the last few years. It's like the market comes back to remind you that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, these things do go in, in uh, cycles and ebbs and flows. And that long view is really important. And discipline, as you're suggesting, on valuation is really important. That is that one of the, the early lessons that I had in this business when I onset ventures was the first firm I worked I worked at and um, Rob Cooling gave me a piece of advice to say, whatever you do, don't fall in love with the deal. <laughs> yeah. You can just not fall in love with it too early, you'll be okay because you'll be able to keep the discipline behind it. But when you when you fall in love too quickly, <laughs> it never it's never good. And I keep that in the back of my mind. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a, and it's such an emotional, like I find the deal making itself is very emotional. You become close to the people that you're dealing with. You you become close to the technologies, the markets. Like, how do you maintain? That's great advice, but I imagine, I know for me, it's been difficult to always implement that. How do you maintain that kind of, you know, objectivity or distance? I think you have to have, a really good team around you. Quite honestly, I I admire um, a lot of managers who start their own firms and they're kind of doing it on their own because I know I get so much out of being in the team environment and having my partners, you know, throw questions at me and ask, you know, why why do you love it? <laughs> why are you so focused on this area? Why do you believe so much that? this could be different in this subsector. You know, we've seen a thousand cardiovascular deals this year. Why this one in particular? And I think constantly having that, that debate and that intellectual rigor around it and that collective knowledge of historically seeing a ton of things that were both successful and not helps me make better decisions. And it keeps me honest about why I'm doing it. To your point, Am I just in love with this one particular deal because I've been looking for a solution like for me, uh, anything in, in acute kidney injury or chronic kin- kidney disease is an area that, that I just believe needs better solutions, so acutely needs better solutions. And so I'm always hungry to find an opportunity there and, and find that thing that can make a difference. Um, and, and so you have to be, I have to be very conscious of the fact that I do think that there's such a strong need that I'm willing to probably bet a little bit further than I normally would in some other subsectors because of that. And it's my team that keeps me honest and, well, is this really the time? Like, this is really interesting, but isn't it just a little too early still? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is this the team to make that bet on right now? Um, So it's helpful. 
I think, to have those types of people around you. Absolutely. Yeah. This is this would be really an impossible business, I think, to do uh, alone. You know, that that group, that partnership who can, uh, you know, ask the tough questions and and, you know, are operating at a little bit more at a distance than, you know, Mm -hmm. the folks that are doing the deal. It's so critical. Absolutely. And our 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 junior staff is very good at that as well, Mm -hmm. right, because they (laughs) they don't bring a lot of the historical uh, baggage to it. And so they constantly changes from just looking objectively at the data. Yeah. Is that really is that really attractive enough for us to get excited? Like, hmm, let me take a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> and, so and, you know, let's, yeah, let's take a pause and really see if this is, is the one right now. So. Yeah. Yeah. Fresh eyes. I mean, it really, it really does help to have that kind of constant infusion of fresh perspectives and, um, and actually we'll get to that as we, you know, as later in the discussion, as we talk about kind of the importance of diversity and diversity of thought, but maybe before we, we do that, it, it, you know, and this kind of dovetails with what you're talking about. One of the challenges I find is, you know, we talk so much in our business about backing A teams and A players and it's so important, but I often find in the deal process, you spend a lot of time on markets, you spend a lot of time on technology, and yes, mm-hmm. you're working with the team, but but you know, really assessing and stepping back and, and sort of judging it, okay, is this the is this the team we want to back? Sometimes I feel like that that uh even as important as it is, uh it doesn't get as much attention as it should. I don't know if how you find it or how do you go about really evaluating the people you're looking to back? That is a great question because it is a it is an evolutionary process in my mind. There will be that handful of entrepreneurs who you have worked with in the past and you know of, and and they have um, been successful maybe a couple of times in, in the same area or multiple areas. And so those are the honestly the easier ones. What is what is the challenging bit of our business, I believe, is that as you are evaluating these new technologies, these innovators who are trying to be at the forefront and change how we deliver healthcare. Most of those teams are coming to it with fresh eyes, right? And so they haven't been there and done it. And how are you making an assessment that this team has the structure, kind of the bones of them or within them to drive this forward and manage a lot of the twists and turns that that will happen as a part of growing this business. And a lot of that will come out of the diligence process. The, the amount of time that you spend working through all of those questions, why this market, how will this market grow, why this product, what does the product profile need to look like, what does the file need to look like from both the payer as well as the clinician experience, all of the, the minutia and level of detail discussion that you have with the entrepreneurs and where and how they push back, where and how they absorb, like pushback coming from me. <laughs> about the way that they thought something through, about the way that they have built their models, about the way that they they feel that their vision will scale. You have to be of a a particular elk, I think, to take all of that on, really listen, and then turn it into actionable takeaways that uh, you can show these investors around the table, myself included, that you are the person that we can trust to, Mm -hmm. to help, you know, be the steward to, to guide us through 
building out a new market. And I think that's the that's the place where we spend a lot of time since our sweet spot tends to be the Series A investor. A lot of times we will work with first-time CEOs. So they may have been in other venture-backed companies or come out of industry, but this is the first time that they've truly been at the helm at the end of the day. And so how do you become both the coach, but still at the end of the day, <laughs> there's a strong expectation as, as their board that they are delivering and giving the right level of communication to so that everyone around the table can make the best decision possible. But it, it is, it is a little bit of a nuanced dance to understand, yeah. you know, what, what drives people, how you motivate certain people. And if that is really a match with like my style and how I work with my companies and my CEOs in the best way, because if they're not getting kind of the best out of me, because we have such different styles and we can't seem to communicate that's what I try to figure out in the diligence mm-hmm. process <laughs> because it's, it's that I think is, is more detrimental at the end of the day than, you know, having, having been off in terms of the product sector, having been off about the size of the market, it will really break down if you can't have those strong discussions around the board. Yeah. That's so interesting. And it rings, rings true to me. I mean, I think in, you know, where I've made mistakes with people in investments, you know, the, the signs were often there in the diligence process and things like yep. what you're saying, you know, the, the communication style or the openness and level of collaboration just wasn't there almost from the get-go. Exactly. Yeah. And that, well, that will also bleed into other things of how well would that person be able to recruit other people? You mm-hmm. know, some of the, the more successful companies that I've seen come through our portfolios have been in those instances where the senior team, and it could have been the senior of, of R&D unit or of the ClinRed unit, but they move as entire team to the next opportunity because they believe so much in their, their person who's leading them and they believe so much in each other about learning and communicating and being willing to really you know, go into battle to, to mm-hmm. change and grow a lot of these companies. So I think you know, your ability to communicate and to take both positive and negative communication, but turn it into, into steps that, that make everyone around you better as well is a really important part of, of how and, and why we do this business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And something you and I also have chatted about is just sort of this self-awareness around, you know, failure and entrepreneurs sort of being self-aware about and reflective about where they failed. Can you talk a little bit about you know that because it's not, not something that's easy in our business to talk about failure, particularly if you're an yeah. entrepreneur fundraising. <laughs> well, it, for the longest time, um, so I started my career on the on the West Coast, right? And what I and, and but I grew up here in and around Chicago, and so what I noticed, even for myself coming out of school and starting an industry, was that there was a slightly different mindset around failure, <laughs> and if if you were growing up in a very entrepreneurial environment, you were almost expected to fail. Like you wouldn't get it right the first time, but it was important for you as a entrepreneur or someone who was willing to work in, in a venture back company to understand what it meant. How to get to that failure? Was there an opportunity to pivot? If there wasn't, then what do you, what are the learnings that you're taking from that situation into your next situation? And one of the, uh, challenges I always had about thinking about moving out of the Bay Area and working in an entrepreneurial environment was would other kind of ecosystems 
ever take on that same type of mantle of it's okay to fail. You don't have to work for a big company and be successful only in the big company um, framework. You could, you could do things on your own and really, you know, try and be aggressive about how you create change through innovation and, and be willing to take on that failure. And so that is part of what I look for when I'm talking to entrepreneurs, I will ask them, you know, when have you been successful or how do you manage failure? Clearly along the way of trying to bring this technology forward, it hasn't always worked. <laughs> yeah. We've been working on this for the last five, six years. So talk to me about how you move through the failure and what you think is important from some of those, those situations to, to bring forward now that you're asking people outside people to invest with you, not, not just your friends and family, but institutional investors who will take a very different lens to it a, a number of the time. So and, and I'll share my stories of failure. I think some of the, you were talking about the lessons that you've learned from investing. Some of the best lessons I've learned from investing is where, where you know, the opportunity didn't work out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, you know, I'm looking at a management team and I had a failure in a similar situation when I was in an operating role. And I can share with them, of, you are probably different. <laughs> but when I had that responsibility, this is where, uh, it didn't go so well. So yeah. are you thinking about that? And what can we do to help you move through that if possible? Or if not, you know, let's just make sure that we're giving ourselves, again, that extra runway, that extra bandwidth, whatever it will take in case we too have to, you know, witness to failure or at least um, not be as successful as we would hope to in the same situation. Yeah. And, and it's part of the beauty of having come from an operating background is, I mean, you've been in that seat, you know, with, you know, as the entrepreneur is, is in currently, and you're able to kind of uh, empathize with what they're going through, but, you know, have that hands-on experience is, you know, as you look, you look at our business, I mean, we have a whole range of people in our, in the venture business, right? Some from operating mm -hmm. roles, others from, you know, clinical roles or what have you, how, how important has that been for you to have that operating experience? First, let me say that I am clearly biased. <laughs> <laughs> I did grow up in an operating role and I, I will say in particular, um, and you've probably heard other people say this, but I think growing up in that, in that guidance environment in particular was pretty unique insofar as from the very beginning, you know, as a green engineer, I started with them as a summer intern. Um, they gave me a huge amount of responsibility, literally anything that I was willing to kind of take on in terms of projects. If I showed enthusiasm, willingness to like just get my hands dirty and, and get the work done, then I ended up with more projects. <laughs> so you know, by the time I left to go to business school, I was already a manager of the engineering team and had, I think at that point, had launched two products into the market. So just the amount of exposure that you, you can get um, in a lot of the venture back company experiences, it's huge. <laughs> and, and there were, in many ways, no real title. Oh, yes, I was a reliability engineer, but I did a little bit of de design work and I learned what it meant to be a quality engineer. And I was also on the manufacturing line for a little bit. So I, I knew the business from a lot of different facets. And when you have seen a company grow 
at that level of accelerated growth and seeing it through all of those lenses, as well as having been in the senior staff debate about <laughs> how we should be growing the business. It was just a fantastic level of exposure. And so I do still bring that into a lot of my decision-making process um, yeah. and a lot of my discussions with, with our team, because I do understand when they're talking about, you know, this reliability testing is going to take a lot of money and time and rigor. I'm like, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> if you do it well, it has to, and we have to do it well because again, we're putting devices in humans. And so um, we, in that environment and at that stage of development have to be extra diligent about um, the rigor and the, uh, the level of scrutiny that we're putting on ourselves. And that's probably the biggest lesson I learned. You know, in one of my one of my first roles was as a reliability engineer, and they sent me to England to do the the lot release testing for some of our first first in man um, clinical trials. And so, when I was there, it was my responsibility to say, okay, yes, these lots are ready to uh, be put into the clinical trial. My supervisor at the time said, you know, there are specs, but then on the other side of the spec is a person. So if you are confident that this is a device that you would put in your grandmother, then we'll go. But if you can't make that that decision with, you know, the full weight of it, then mm -hmm. we probably need to run more tests. And so it's that level of, of almost intimacy mm -hmm. <laughs> that I learned very early on that we are making decisions and yes, they are business decisions, but they are clinical decisions and they're yeah. people decisions. And if you're okay doing that from the very beginning and always with that thought in the back of your mind, um, you'll be okay. But that is probably the thing that drives me is, is I'm, I'm st still today when I work with our team, at the end of the day, we're making decisions that will affect a patient. Yeah. And so how do you make sure <laughs> that all of the decisions are made for the right reason? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the, the, the best companies that I've worked with have that intense focus on the patient and on the clinician. And, you know, and that's never, even if, if they become much bigger, they never lose kind of that, primary or prime primal you know <laughs> interface with uh you know with who they're actually helping right i agree so and, it, I mean, and, and don't yeah. get me wrong our, our business we are in it to make money for our investors right they are they are also putting a lot of faith in us and many of us have pension funds as our investors mm -hmm. they're, they're looking at us to be shepherds of, of their investment because they too have a constituency that they use those funds to to help manage their healthcare plans, right? And <laughs> their retirement benefits. And so all of this is a circle that comes together. But I have always been a big believer that if you make the right decision about where innovation needs to happen and you make it with the, the patient, and like you're saying, the, the clinician who has to deliver that to the patient in mind, then the success will come. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, something you said earlier really uh, struck me around kind of, you know, we we are often involved in situations in our business where it's, we're not coming up with another stent or, an, you know, an, an, another widget, but we're actually developing a new business model and the importance of having entrepreneurs who can kind of think outside the box and be creative. And and you've done a lot of that in your investment career with Cala and, and, and you know, companies like Paratherapeutics and things that really are developing new business models and more consumerism. And I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on kind of 
the rise of consumerism and and sort of how you see that playing out in our healthcare system? Yeah, it's it has been really interesting over the last 10 years just to see how quickly we have um, we being all of us as, as uh, those who, who try to bring innovation into the market, but also those of us who are also consuming <laughs> innovation mm-hmm. as much as we can. Um, to me, it comes down to this constant quest to make things easier in our lives. Anything that causes friction irritates me to no end. And I can remember telling my team at Abbott, so that would be 10 years ago now. I think my vision, like the perfect world for me would be to walk into a CVS, walk up to a kiosk, um, have them read my eyes like we do for the clear system at the airport. I can go do my shopping. And by the time I come back, I have my yearly physical results. And I've got two appointments in the book with my my primary physician and maybe a specialist that I have to go to. It has not stopped me from my activities during the day. I have not had to carve out time to try and figure out how, where, when I was going to get into that clinician's office. And in terms of getting to the data that I needed to understand where, where I am right now in a physical, from a physical perspective, I didn't have to go through 12 hoops to do that either. So the entire thing became seamless. And if you look at, uh, you know, the partnership, the, the uh, merger that happened between CVS and Aetna, <laughs> you look at what uh, Walmart and, and Walgreens are starting to do with their on-site clinics through their existing brick and mortar um, footprint, you can start to see how that would and probably will become much more of a reality and much sooner than we expected. Because at the end of the day, having the expectation that people, and when I say people, I mean anyone who is interested and wants to have access to healthcare has to get it through a hospital or clinic system. And I know from my own experience of working with my family and in particular my parents who live not in a, a urban environment, um, you know, getting them to an appointment with a specialist at a, at a hospital system is not a trivial thing. Right. <laughs> I have to carve out of my schedule how I'm going to get them there as opposed to saying, is there a better way? to meet someone at the point at which they could best receive their the level of care that they need. And so when, when I talk about consumerism, when we talk about consumerism, it is not necessarily having everything on your mobile phone and ready to access it. For mm-hmm. some of us, that is a great place and a great way for us to manage uh, all things related to healthcare. But for other people, that's not it either. And so where is the point at which a person can and should access care? What's the most efficient way for them to get it? And what is the the best (laughs) um, support system for them to make sure that they continue to close that loop? And I think that's what we are getting much better at in our business. And I think a lot of that has been driven by more minds from a pure technology perspective or, or more minds who have grown up in uh, uh, industry that has been completely consumer focused coming into healthcare and saying, 
well, why does it have to be so hard to deliver yeah. that type of care? <laughs> Let's figure out something that that is uh, a lot easier for someone to get to, but without changing the quality of care that they were receiving. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting. I feel like, you know, there's so many different silos in our business, you know, whether it's, you know, medical device manufacturing or, you know, as you mentioned, even within the hospital system, you, you know, you're treated by a surgeon and after the procedure, you kind of hand it off to a physical therapy. But there's, you know, very little cohesion in the whole, exactly. in the whole system. <laughs> It seems, I don't know, how, how, how do we deal? It seems like, you know, almost every patient needs kind of an advocate or someone to help guide them, even savvy patients, you know, or savvy people like us who kind of know the business. I feel like there's, you still need someone to help guide you through to find the right people or to get the best care. Well, and I think that is, you have hit on the challenge itself. I I label myself as the care advocate's were the care advocate for my parents. Mm -hmm. And that is truly the case. And to your point of, I have worked in and around healthcare now for over 20 years, almost 30 years, I think. And, you know, when a new condition comes up for them, it's like I'm starting from ground zero. Mm -hmm. Like I know this space, but why working with this system or within this system or within their payer group why is it so difficult to get people to talk, to speak to each other? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like the, the numbers are all there in the chart. I can see them. Why can't her, my mom's, why can't my mom's primary clinician, her heart failure specialist, her, mm-hmm. you know, all of her doctors who manage her care, why am I the center point of that? And so when we see technologies or opportunities where people are trying to connect the dots so that, especially for, for, um, Many of us who are children in that situation where we are now trying to help our parents through these more complicated healthcare questions and, and uh, care delivery situation, that you can have almost a centralized dashboard <laughs> that everyone can understand and communicate from, and that you can you know tie in not only the, the care plans from the clinicians, but also the back and forth that you naturally have with whoever your payer is as well. And they want better information because they have populations on their plans or within their systems that they know patients need to be better connected to their Mm -hmm. data. Patients need to better understand what all of these care plans really mean and where they need to be more compliant or engaged. And and the the communication breakdown, I think, is the, the most challenging part of it. It will be fundamentally interesting for me as... I think as we continue to evolve in this area, because for those of us who do, and I'm, I'm one of them, I love technology. <laughs> I love having everything on my phone, how efficient we will be able to become in all of these management streams and, and how that we will continue to force both the clinician and the, the provider, or sorry, the, the payer side of, of the equation to provide us with better tools so mm-hmm. that we can have richer discussions about this and make it easier to manage, you know, everything from, from beginning to end. But I will say, I, I, I remember having a very similar discussion after I moved back to the States. I'd been living in Hong Kong for three years and um, we did not have mobile banking in the States yet. Mm-hmm. They had it in Asia because most everything worked off of your phone in Asia. Uh, and I can remember being in discussions with people 
were in conversations with people who would say, why would I ever like move money on my phone when I could mm-hmm. just go into a branch office mm-hmm. and do it? And that was 20 years ago. And right. I can honestly say I haven't been into a branch to do anything <laughs> in probably six or seven years. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing how quickly items can change if it substantially increases the comfort and reduces the friction that somebody has if yeah, you present exactly. to do a particular act. Exactly. And yet healthcare, I mean, because, and as you point out, you know, there's so many disparate systems that are operating. You have the payer systems and the hospital systems. And then, so it seems to move a little bit more slowly, but, but, you know, that's not to discount what, you know, in, in the financial industry, I'm sure you have also lots of different things, but. <laughs> financial industry, regulated environment, they're yeah. used to doing things a certain way, but mm-hmm. I will say, you know, the biggest um, as positive coming out of the COVID experience is that that was a shot in the arm for us, mm-hmm. right? Of what what is really needed in terms of completing a visit? <laughs> Do does every visit need to be in person? No, probably not. Yeah. For someone like me, do I have to be present at all my parents' visit? Can't I FaceTime in or video in to the office? Yes, I can. And the doctor. Whereas prior to COVID was kind of not okay with that or wasn't encouraging of that, I should say. Yeah. Post COVID, it's like, come on in. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're video calling a poll perfect. Because for for that clinician, then he that person doesn't have to have multiple post-visit conversations with me yeah. to give me the same information that he gave to one of my parents, but they didn't quite digest it. And I'm actually the person who needs to digest it. So mm-hmm. why not bring the two worlds together in the visit if it's possible from a technology perspective? Yeah. And that's what I think we're particularly getting better at. Yeah. And, and then maybe looping it back to, you know, med tech companies, do you see med tech companies? And we, you know, see a handful that we haven't invested. I'm curious if you've made a bet on any of them that are kind of forward integrating into, you know, more of this care delivery or the output outcomes of uh you know whatever patient group they're they're serving are you seeing it working from kind of a med tech manufacturer perspective i see a lot more discussion and desire to close that loop um so i thought this year what was really interesting was that robert ford was the keynote speaker at ces right Mm -hmm. First time met tech CEO at being in that role. <laughs> and I think that that is an indicator that more of the focus within a lot of the, the larger multinational med tech companies is how do we really own and understand the patient journey from beginning to end? And even when I worked in diabetes care for Abbott, part of the reason that I wanted to do that operating role was prior to that, I had I'd always been in, in roles where it was heavily weighted on the clinician making the decision for the patient. Whereas in diabetes care, it's often, it, it, the choices are mediated by the clinician. So they're, they're, they're giving their thoughts and perspectives. But at the end of the day, the patient is choosing the meter that they use or the pump that they use or the, the continuous glucose monitoring system that they, they use. And they're, they're making those decisions for very personal reasons of how they want to manage their life 
knowing that they have these conditions. And so as a manufacturer or someone who is delivering technology into that environment, you also have to have a better understanding of what are those underlying drivers. And so what data do they need to have coming out of those devices to make it easier for them to manage? But what data do I need to collect in the devices as well Mm -hmm. to better understand what the next generation of product really looks like? You brought up the Cala Health Investment. That investment for me was really interesting because you know, there are millions of people, almost 8 million people in the U.S. that, that suffer from some form of tremor um, at any given point in time. For those who suffer, who, who have a form of essential tremor, especially the level of tremor that may be preventative for them to be able to sign their name or if they were a painter, continue to paint or if they were a pianist, you know, be able to pay, play their mm-hmm. instruments. To give them an opportunity to, to reset the clock through the device and the therapeutic effect that can be delivered in that device is, is one aspect of it. And that's, that's the great part of the innovation. But the other side of it is really using that technology to understand, you know, how and when some of those tremors occur. Are, is there a personalized therapy that can be developed for a given patient um, because you, you, you have that, that device on board? <laughs> for multiple hours in a a given day. And so, you know, we talk a lot about having data and the access to data, but really tapping into how you use that at the individual level and make people individually smarter, but also make uh, a lot of these innovators smarter about what needs to come next Mm -hmm. is where I see the huge opportunity. Most of us don't want to have to mine through our own data. data, Let's just be honest. (laughs) Yeah, But if you can give me one or two key insights a day, I love that. Yeah, Most people, that's what they want. Don't give me a, a laundry list of, of 10 other things that I need to do. But, you know, a couple of reminders yeah. here and there. But as yeah. an innovator, all of that is just a, a rich pool that hopefully we can tap into to make better products and services at the end of the day that help support that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's inter- it's interesting. I mean, you know, both empowering patients because at the end of the day, a lot of our chronic conditions are driven by this sometimes driven by decisions that are made, you know, on a daily basis. And empowering patients, people to make better decisions is important. And then on the care delivery side, also making it kind of seamless for 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 clinicians to act on that data and then they're all super busy and they don't always have time to mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have a, a, a company in our portfolio called Strata Oncology. And, and part of the mission behind Strata originally was to help clinicians, you know, oncologists better understand the right therapy for the right patient mm-hmm. at that particular time. And, and they used it. The underpinning of that was, um, next generation sequencing technology and the way that they had developed their, their analytical panel. But as we started working more so with clinicians, it really became those insights that they got (laughs) from the report that Strato was generating for them and being able to look at what would normally be like 10 different streams of information for an oncologist and then sit down and say, okay, for this patient, I think this is the treatment pathway and clearing up some of the noise for a provider at the end of the day. I think you hit on it a little bit, but but there is just so much coming at clinicians (laughs) 
to be able to uh, get them to their the insights faster and help them tie together all of this new information that's being thrown at them is just as important as if not more important because um, the insights and the learnings from their peer group is another area where you know it's really important to tie that together and and clinicians only have so many hours in a day between seeing patients and charting and, and trying to stay on top of those things. Any any of the tools and data analytics that, that we can pull together to help refine that process for them has been hugely helpful, I think. Yeah. Well, that's super interesting. You know, another topic I, I want to make sure to, uh, to open up with you is, is around diversity and inclusion. And you've, you know, played a significant role in, in helping, you know, our industry along in that regard. But, you know, maybe to start off with, as you step back, you know, kind of where, if we think about med tech mm-hmm. venture, where are we today? How how would you grade uh, the business in terms of how how we're doing on those two metrics? Oh, um, okay. So so yes, we are better. We still have a while a while and a ways to go. And I would say that um, I know and I believe that we are better because. I fundamentally see more people that look like me in multiple types of companies at multiple levels. Um, But there's still a disconnect in the number of women who end up in senior management roles within healthcare. I think, I think overall, I, I see more women come into those roles within healthcare than I, I have seen within pure tech. Um, and I'm always curious as to why that that has been the case, maybe, maybe because of the number of women or female scientists that you see coming out of universities each year, which still tends to be almost or closer to 50 to 50 percent, um, especially in the more recent years. You, you still don't see as many women and uh, people of color for our business moving into roles where they are starting or um, uh, considering starting their own businesses, I'd like to to see that number continue to increase. And a lot of it has to do with representation and access of when you see, and I'll speak for myself, the, the more that I saw, you know, the generation of in particular African-American men and women who were in roles, senior leadership roles within some of our our multinational healthcare companies and um, see them to start move into roles within venture, then you could, I could start to envision myself doing that same thing. Because I didn't, I didn't know what venture capital was when I went to business school, even. I think that was the first time that I really heard of it, even though I was at, at ACS, it never really clicked for me that that was a venture back company. I just knew that, you know, we were, we were um, owned by a group of people and, and uh, we got to do really cool things because we weren't a part of a really large <laughs> uh, healthcare company. But I think it's really important that we keep pushing the envelope around the people that we have around the table and where we are pulling from when we're thinking about hiring 
into our own companies within the portfolio, but also, you know, as we bring in new members into our firms. Um, the story that I like to tell is, you know, I came into venture not through the pathway of wanting to be a venture capitalist. I came into venture because I thought I wanted to start my own company. And a piece of advice that I got from one of my mentors was, um, you know, if he had to, to go back in time, he would have been smarter about it and learned how venture capitalists thought and negotiated before he got on the other side of the table and started asking them for money. So his advice to me was learn how they think, uh, learn how you could be the best entrepreneur by understanding to the best of your ability, how your board is going to, to uh, operate around you and their expectations of you. And that's how I, I got into it. Um, and it was an opportunity for me to learn. And uh, the folks at Onset took a bet on me because of a lot of the operating experience that I had. And um, I think in order for us to continue to change the level of diversity that we have in the business, people have to take bets on people and backgrounds that have not traditionally been <laughs> in the industry before, because it would have been much easier for them to say, we want another investment banker and, or another consultant as a junior person on our team. And those are great professions to come out of. It was far rarer at that time to have somebody with a, a operating background mm -hmm. and far rarer to have a, a African-American female with an operating background come into a firm. Yeah. That you, within Arboretum, but also within your companies, what are the sort of practical steps you see Arboretum or companies taking to broaden their searches to make them more inclusive? We have honest conversations <laughs> about, mm -hmm. okay, let's look at our CEOs. How many of our CEOs are women? How many of our CEOs are people of color? Um, if we're thinking about bringing on independent directors or looking for independent directors, we will make the assessment. Okay, I'm joining this board. I am the only woman. I am the only person of color. Uh, we have the opportunity to bring on two individuals. And I have stated to my boards before in the, and currently in the past, you know, it's my mission to change the face of this board. Let's. <laughs> bring some additional diversity into it and to have those discussions early with people and to make sure that, that we're on the same page with that. Right. Uh, and if there is a discussion of, well, do we really need to do that? Nicole, shouldn't we just look for the best person, Nicole, the two aren't mutually ex exclusive. Mm -hmm. You can find a fantastic person and bring diversity to the board. It mm -hmm. goes back to, how are you changing the lens through which you are trying to find people? If mm -hmm. you are going to the same well that you have always gone to that resulted in a full board of white male, you will probably end up with the same profile with, if you don't diversify it, <laughs> the, yeah. the uh, opportunities that you have to go to different places. And that's tapping in the network. Uh, you know, there are multiple people now in our business who as I said, look like me now. They're, they have networks that I tap into all the time to say, you know, who do you think would be interesting? I'm looking for this type of background. I would love to get a woman. I would love to have a person, another person of color join the board. Is there anybody, you know, 
that you would recommend. And I always get four or five names. And people do the same thing with me. They will say, Nicole, we would love to bring someone into our firm, a woman into our firm. Um, is there anyone in your network that you would have us talk to to get to know better? And I always have three or four people who have reached out to me to say, I would love to move out of industry and maybe learn more about venture. If it ever comes up, keep me in line. Yeah. So I'm curious just as we, you know, because this notion of equity can be so, you know, I don't know, it's politically charged or loaded. Like, well, what do we mean by equity? Is it more equity in the process and inclusion in the process? Or is it making sure that there's kind of a diverse representation of people around the table, you know, sort of a step above just not only having a, an a more inclusive process, but actually, you know, making sure that translates into, into diversity. How do you view the notion of, or what does it mean to you? What does equity mean? Equity, to me? Yeah. Is it the process and inclusiveness in the process? Or do you think it's equity is really sort of making sure that our management teams are diverse, that the end result is, is diversity? I think it's all of the above. It is not enough in my mind to say um, that we want to do more, and I'll use women as an example. It is not enough in my mind to say that we want to do more to bring women to the table, but still keep a construct where as you bring women to the table, especially in our business, it also boils down to who has decision-making authority and who is equally sharing in the economics of our business, right? And so, yes, you can have equity in terms of I want to make half our team uh, have gender equivalency within our team. Let's put it that way. But if you still hold the construct that the person who has been here the longest ends up with the largest piece of the economic pie and the very nature of our business is that women haven't been in these roles as long, (laughs) then you will constantly have this push and pull of how do you maintain equity when you're holding to a hierarchical structure that allows you to not grant equity Mm -hmm. (laughs) to a person by the very fact that either by their gender or race and ethnicity, they weren't allowed to participate from the very beginning. So you have to be open to (laughs) right-sizing that entire construct. And I think for those firms who have taken a step back and said, You know, we are willing to change the way that we think about doing things and how we reward and promote people after we bring them in. Because recruiting someone is one thing, but retaining someone is a completely different set of expectations and activities. And you retain good people, I believe, and whether we're talking about venture or industry, you retain good people because you are are challenging them and meeting them where they can be most successful. But the reward is no different than anyone else on the team. Um, yeah. Or, or it's, it's fair as it relates to, you know, that, that level within the, the organization. So, yes, the CEO is compensated as a CEO. <laughs> but yeah. if you are a VP, it shouldn't matter. If you were a VP for 12 years or a VP for 10 years, it should be there's a level of expectation and if you're meeting that expectation and you're being rewarded appropriately, then you usually feel a person will feel that they are an important part of the team and that they are valued within that team without that value. Then you don't get the retention 
and just giving equal access doesn't automatically get you to valued retention. That's how I would put it. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. You know, for me, you know, the, and I think you made a great point. I mean, it, 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 finding someone of a diverse background, diverse, you know, including people diverse, you know, gender, race, that is not exclusive of finding the best candidate. So it's, you know, I think that's a great point. I think the, what I worry about a little bit is, are we, is it, are we in sort of an identity politics where race and gender is actually the first thing we see rather than sort of the the content of the character or what have you. And, and I wonder if we're walking that line or how you think about that. Well, okay. My bias. Yeah. I think that you, I think that you should see race and gender. That is, mm-hmm. that is part of that person, but it shouldn't stop there. I mean, I, I would like to think that, you know, the diversity that I bring to the table is yes, my race and my gender, but it is also the fact that I just grew up in in healthcare from the business side in a fundamental a fundamentally different way than everyone else around the table of my firm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of my partners was trained as a physician. He ran a healthcare system for many years. He looks at things through a completely different lens. And if he were a black woman, <laughs> he would still, as a she, would bring a completely different perspective insofar as how how that person grew up within healthcare, how they learn the challenges of healthcare, completely different. And you know, where he starts his arguments are completely different from where I start them. So it's just when we talk about diversity, it has to be in the fullness of it. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves of saying that okay, we have diversity in the team because we have different industry experiences is also not a pass to step away from the question of, okay, that's great, but why isn't this boardroom representative of kind of who we are within this country? And why aren't there women at the table? And why aren't there people of color at the table? Yeah. I, I think it's still a fair and appropriate and needed question yeah. because I think the easier fallback, and all of us are guilty of it, is that if we only do the things that are easy to do by tapping into the networks that we always have, then we will always end up with the same results. Mm-hmm. And so the constant challenge, especially for the senior leaders within our field, is to be mindful and consistently push us about, are we, have we done enough? When we're going to panels and the panels are all male and white, there was no one that we could find <laughs> to bring in additional thought on that particular panel. Mm-hmm. If we're looking to bring in interns for the summer and the entire class has a certain look and feel to it, did we really do enough to <laughs> increase the, the potential for representation in other areas? And I just think it's too easy a lot of times to say that, well, we couldn't find the right person, or we couldn't find people to put into the pool. I'm, I'm not a big believer of that. I think you have to try harder. Well, Nicole, this has been such a fascinating discussion. I've learned a lot and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And uh, Always. No, I love the podcast. So this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Nicole. All right. You have a great day. You too.